All right, if you'll take your Bibles tonight, please, and turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Now, how many of you guys have had a heart transplant? Okay, or an amen? Amen. Come on now. How many of y'all had a heart transplant? Aren't you glad you did? One day you met Jesus Christ, and we heard from Ezekiel, a beautiful picture, how he takes out the stony heart, he takes out the hard heart, he takes out the, the, uh, the unrepentant heart, and puts in a heart of flesh. He makes us new. It's a beautiful picture of the new birth. We heard that this morning. Now, tonight, we want to kind of continue that thought, because here's the deal. When you get a new heart, you still have a responsibility to take care of that heart. I told you that sometimes the heart can be fixed, not spiritually, but physically. Sometimes the heart can be fixed. Sometimes you go in and they do a heart uh, catheterization, do angioplasty, and they balloon your heart out. They root root of your heart out, open up those arteries and, and save the heart that way. Sometimes they do heart bypass surgery, and that is they bypass a, a clogged artery so the heart receives the blood that it needs. So when you get a new heart, like Larry did, if Larry got his new heart, he still had to take care of that heart. And we have responsibility to take care of our transplanted heart also. So tonight we want to talk about, one, how do you take care of your heart? And two, what do you do when you end up with some clogged arteries? Now, I'm glad to report to you that your new heart will never die. Amen? It is an eternal heart. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful transplant. It's made new. But we can, if we're not careful, not take care of our heart. Some things that can happen that can really impact how we live and our impact life here. And God gives us instruction on how to take care of exactly that. Now, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 23, and this is a loose translation because I'm just doing it from memory. But it says something like this. Guard your heart. Guard your heart because out of it come the issues of life. One translation says... Um, guard your heart because out of it comes the wellspring of life. Okay, that's another translation. There are several translations, but a key thought, um, Solomon says, above everything else, above all else, guard your heart because. You know, we got two eyes, we got two ears, we got two nostrils, we got two kidneys. A lot of things got duplicated, but how many hearts do we have? We have one. The heart is very important physically, and oh my, the heart is important spiritually. So Solomon says, guard your heart above all else. And may I be very candid with you, just like we do not do it physically, I do not believe in America, and I'm going to say it probably in our church, in the lives of the average Christian, we don't do a very good job of it spiritually either. Uh, some of us can afford to lose some weight. Uh, some of us need to get off the couch and exercise. They tell you that if you just do a little bit of exercise, it really increases the value and the strength of your heart. And so also, if we'll just do some maintenance with our heart, we can keep it vibrant and alive. So how do we do that? How do we clean out the clogged artery, artery spiritually in our life if our new heart gets clogged up a bit? Well, the scripture we did not use this morning was Psalm 139. Again, I just want to read that to you, uh, 23 and 24. And it says this. Search me, O God. Search me, O God. And know my heart. So we're going back to the heart, doctor. Search my heart. Uh, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there are any anxious ways. And if, the, if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me to the way everlasting. So God, search my heart. Look deeply into my heart. See if there's something in my heart that does not need to be there. Now that should be a regular prayer of our lives. I, I'm, I'm awful afraid that we are casual about sin in our lives. 
And we should, one of the first things we should do when we do our quiet time, whether you do it at night or whether you do it in the morning, is we need to get honest with God and say, God, is there any wickedness in my heart? Is there any wickedness in my life that needs to be cleansed out? Are there any arteries that need to be unplugged? Now, what we have, of course, in Psalm 51 is the story of David's repentance over his clogged arteries. Okay, what we have is the story of the cleansing of David's heart, the unclogging of his arteries after the sin of Bathsheba. And even as those words roll out of my brain, out of my mouth, from my brain, I'm amazed how often we miss the main point. The main point is, is that Uriah died. Sin is a serious sin. But we've got to understand that Uriah was murdered, really, at the hand of David. So even though we always talk about David and Bathsheba and David and Bathsheba and David and Bathsheba, we really all talk about David and Uriah because Uriah died at the hand of David, was betrayed by David. And Uriah was a much bigger man, by the way, than David ever was. So I don't want, to, I don't want you to, when we read this story today, it'll happen naturally. Don't think David and Bathsheba. Think David and Uriah. Think Dwayne and Donna. Uh, thank Todd and Connie in their marriage. Think about things in your life where sin has crept in. It may be as simple as unforgiveness. It may be hardness of heart. It may be spiritual uh, uh, laziness. Whatever it might be. Whatever the sin is, it doesn't matter. This prescription applies. You do not have to have the atomic bomb in your life to apply Psalm 51. And I think that's the problem. Because, you know, in our lives, we, you know, some of us have not had the atomic bomb, the, what we were called the big sins. And so we're comfortable in our sin life. We should never, never, never be comfortable in our sin life. So as we look at this scripture tonight, don't think adultery, don't think murder, think sin. And then apply it to your life and to my life today. So in Psalm 51 and verse number 1, the first, number, the first two verses, we, we see David pleading to God. Okay, and, and what I want you to see, this really is God's part, and then really the rest, but verse 3 and 4 really are David's part. Here's what he says. He says, have mercy upon me. Now let's just pause there. Because, again, this, this is so rich. You literally can go word by word in this scripture and study it. It's so powerful, so full. David cries out. David was a man after God's own heart. We would call him a good Christian. Okay? So he was a man after God's own heart, and he knew the character and nature of God. And so he says to God, God, I'm crying out to you. Have mercy on me. God, I'm asking you not to give me what I deserve. But God, give me what I need. What David deserved was God's wrath and judgment. What David is asking for is grace. Let me say it again. What David deserved was God's wrath and judgment. What David needs, or what David is asking for, is grace. We, again, once again, you're going to hear it over and over again. Maybe it's a thing for my preaching this year. Once again, reminded what each one of us deserved was God's wrath. You ever say, God's not fair, God's not fair. Be grateful he's not fair. Because if he was fair, we would be eternally separated from him in a place called hell. We would be totally separated. But because he wasn't fair, rather he showed 
grace and mercy to us, we are saved tonight if we know Jesus Christ as Savior. If we turn from our sins, we have experienced God's grace. So David cries out, and the nature and the character of God, God have mercy upon me, O Lord. How? How? According to your unfailing love. Uh, the New King James says, your loving kindness, your unfailing love. According to the multitude of your tender mercies. And that carries the idea of unmerited kindness. Lord, according to your unmerited kindness, blot out my... And he uses three words, three verbs, and three nouns. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. The idea of blotting out is obliterating the charge that was against David. The idea of washing is taking a filthy garment and washing it and removing the stains. The idea of cleansing me was, the, was the, what the priest did with the blood as they sprinkled it on the altar. It was the idea of washing away the sin with the blood. David cries out to David, to God, on his behalf, saying, God, please, on my behalf, show the mercy. Show the mercy. Blot out, wash, and cleanse me from my sin. And then we go into David's part. And this, I think, we really wrestle with. He says this. For I acknowledge my transgressions. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. You know, it's just amazing. If you think about this, David, where he is right now, after he's been confronted with Nathan, okay, acknowledges the fact that he has sinned. There were no lame excuses. There was no, no, well, God, you know, you understand, you know, man has needs, and, and God, you're right, wouldn't cooperate. And there was nothing. He just simply said this, I acknowledge my sin. Do you find yourself in your quiet time, when you do get around and saying, hey, God, would you please forgive me of this, making an excuse to God why you did what you did? It's a huge step forward in our life of taking care of our heart when we are willing to simply acknowledge, God, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. No excuses. No excuses. The Holman Christian uh, Standard Bible Commentary made a comment and said, he acknowledged the fact, hey, God, this isn't a weakness. This is wickedness. Hey, God, God, this, this is not an accident. It was an atrocity. I liked that. It grabbed me. So when we talk to God about our sin, just say, hey, God, I gossiped today. Hey, God, I lied today. Hey, God, I hated today. Hey, God, I just simply was not willing to extend grace today. And by the way, that would be a sin. Because we who have experienced sin should, excuse me, experienced grace should extend grace. Extend grace. So he acknowledged his sin. And the way, the first step in cleaning out your clogged arteries in your spiritual heart is to acknowledge your sin. In fact, he says, my sin is always before me. It haunted him. It haunted him. I think it haunted him. You understand there was probably about a year from the time Uriah died and he took Bathsheba into his home. There was probably about a year there before Nathan the prophet shows up and says, you are the man. You are the man. At least nine months. Probably a year. And if you read the Psalms, there are several Psalms that describe not a man playing a harp, but a man who's just running to ground with conviction. You know, you know, almost, in fact, some of the descriptions are physical in nature. It's apparent that God's hand of conviction was on David. So his sin 
It haunted him. His sin was ever before him. We're in a very dangerous place. Listen to this. We are in a very dangerous place when we can sin and not care. We're in a very dangerous position. Now again, don't think adultery. Think your life. In fact, a little challenge. What was the last sin you committed? I can tell you mine. What's the last sin you committed? That was this morning. What's the last sin you committed? It's, it's a frightening thought that we can live our lives either thinking we're way spiritual, we can go like three weeks without sinning, or most of the time it just doesn't bother us. David said, I am haunted by my sin. Would to God that we, God's people, would be haunted by our sin. I love what my brother prays. I've heard him pray over again. He, he prays it sometimes about lost people. He prays it sometimes about saved people in sin. God, bother them. God, bother them. Would it be that we should be praying to God? God, bother me about my sin. I'm way too comfortable with it. God, bother me. My sin, keep my sin always before me. And then verse 4. Against you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil. He understood that he had sinned. Now, I, I wrote a list down. Here's, here's what the list looks like. Number one, he sinned against Uriah. Everybody agree with that one? Uriah was killed at the orders of David, put him in the hottest part of the battle, then pulled back from him, and he dies. So he sinned against Uriah. He sinned against Bathsheba. Now, once again, there's some folks who'll try to tell you, well, she was a willing party. And I guess, okay, some degree. But I'm telling you, he was the king. And when the king spoke, he got what he wanted. Bathsheba was not there because she wanted to be. She was there because she was ordered to be. So she, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against the nation. He was the leader. He was the king. He was to set the example. And his example of one of was lying, deceit, murder, and adultery. He sinned against the nation. He sinned against his family. We don't get this. Sir, when you choose to commit adultery, you better throw your family in the pot of the ones you hurt. You know, we, we seem to have this mentality today that, hey, I, I can do it as long as I don't hurt anyone. Rarely, rarely, rarely does sin hurt anyone. In fact, hurt always, sin always hurts someone. Sin hurts you. Sin hurts you. So he sinned against his family, and Absalom later on would rebel against him. Uh, there was the rape of Tamar. It was, it was, the, the sword never left, and according to the word of God, the sword never left the house of David. Sin hurts, and he sinned against his family. Try to explain that illustration. Or try to explain that example to your boys. To your daughters. Well, you know. But most of all, emphatically, he sinned against God. And when we gossip and lie and cheat and steal and envy hearts or whatever the sin might be that you're rolling around in your head as I preach this message tonight, it's bouncing around in your head tonight. Whatever that sin is, Yes, it may involve someone else. It may involve your neighbor. It may involve your friend. It may involve a brother. But you need to understand something. You have sinned, are sinning against holy God. And David said, against you and you only have I sinned. 
to clean your arteries out, you've got to under, you've got to appeal to God's grace and God's mercy, but you've got to understand you've sinned against the holy God. You sinned against the Savior who loved you enough to die. For you. Don't take it lightly. Let your sin bother you. Let your ears bother you, your eyes bother you, your heart bother you, your mouth bother you. The instruments that you might yield to sin. Against you and you only have I sinned. And I've done this evil in your sight that, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. When He's trying to say, he's saying, God, when you brought Nathan to me, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm telling you that I acknowledge my sin. I'm telling you my sin is ever before me. I'm telling you, I know that I sinned against you so that you know that I agree with you. When you sent Nathan to me and said, you're the man, I agree with you. Sometimes we just need to agree with God. Say, God, I've sinned. You say I've sinned, I agree with you. Again, no lame, lame excuses. No saying, but God, you understand because of the circumstances of you know, what's going on. You understand why I did. No, I just said. I just said. So then in verse number five, he goes further. He says, behold, I was brought forth. Uh, I think King James says, I was conceived in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. I was brought forth in sin. In fact, in sin, he said, he said, I was born a sinner. In fact, I think he's saying that I was a sinner while I was still in the womb because I had the, the Adam sin. I had the Adam sin nature. If life, have you ever thought about that? As life begins at conception, and and the and the and the Adam, <laughs> the sin of Adam has penetrated every human being, and we believe a baby is a human being when the conception takes place, he was a sinner from the womb and before the womb. Or in the womb. Come on, amen? See how serious this is? So David admits this. He says, I, I was a sinner. Even while I was in my mom's womb. Now, now let, me, let me balance this out for you. Listen. Sometimes, you need to admit you're a sinner. Now, I don't think y'all live there. If you constantly, you know, all, you know, I'm a worm, I'm a sinner, I'm a worm, I'm wretched, I'm a sinner, that's going to lead a warped relationship between you and God. I really think you should live in grace. But sometimes it just is a good idea to say, hey, God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm regenerated, I'm born again, but God, sinner sin, and I did. <laughs> Come on. Sometimes you just need to tell God, God, I know that I am a sinner. There's a balance there. Don't live there. Don't live there. It'll lead to warpness in your relationship. But sometimes you just need to tell God, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge what I was. And God, at this point, even though I'm regenerated, I acknowledge the fact I sinned against you. Verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. For nine months, what did David do? I don't know anything about Uriah's death. I, I don't, how did I meet Bathsheba? Oh, we went to Harmony.com. You know, I went to a dating site. I mean, I didn't know. I, I didn't know she was married. I didn't know, you, I didn't know all that would have been lies, right? Deception. For nine months at least, he covered it up. 
He covered up. And he says here, you desire truth. You don't want the big cover-up. God doesn't want his people covering up our sin. He wants admission of our sin, acknowledging of our sin. Again, God bother me about my sin. Don't let me be comfortable with my sin. Make me very uncomfortable with my sin. Behold, you desire truth in the inner parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. And then this last illustration is so powerful. Purge me with hyssop. Now, according to the law, when a, when a leper had to be cleansed from his leprosy, they would take a hyssop branch, they would slaughter the animal, and they would dip the branch in the blood and sprinkle the blood on the altar. It's a beautiful picture. When David says, purge me with hyssop, he saw himself as a spiritual leper. And he knew what would cleanse, and what would cleanse? Nothing but the blood. He looked forward to the cross. He looked forward to the coming Messiah. But he knew cleansing power was in the blood. And today we know, looking back, that cleansing power is in the blood. It's not by stopping habits. It's not by trying to do this or trying to do that. It is simply by the power of the blood of Jesus Christ that we are made clean. So he says, purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Come now, Isaiah said. Let us reason together. Though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as snow. Isaiah knew what we know. It is God who can wash us and make us pure. We cannot do that ourselves. That's a good place for an amen. So as we, as we, as we acknowledge the fact that our transplanted heart, our new heart, we've allowed some stuff to get in there. We acknowledge our sin. We own our sin. It bothers us. And then we ask God, to cleanse us and make us pure. Now, verse number 8 and 9. He says, make me hear joy and gladness. Do you remember what David was known as? Again, man after God's own heart. But he was the great musician. He was the great worshiper. And during those nine months, again, if you look at, at the, some of the Psalms, you don't hear the songs of worship. Have you lost your song? Have you lost your song? I'm telling you, in my life, I'll pick on me and then you can have the night off. You know, there are times when I just know things aren't right. And I, I talk to God and sometimes I know what it is and sometimes I don't. But I lose my song. I never forget when I had surgery, you know, my colon section. I remember coming down the stairs and I was singing. And I guess it had to be you because there had been no one else there. And you know what Judy said? I was singing. And she said, you have your song back. For weeks I had not sung. You have your song back. David is saying, God, through this, through your confrontation of my sin, through my acknowledgement of my sin, for my pleading not what I deserve, but what I need. I know I deserve judgment and wrath, but I'm pleading for your grace. Through all of that, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. He was crushed. I mean, can you imagine his arrogance as Nathan the prophet tells the parable about the man with one lamb and the guy has lots of lambs and the guy with lots of lambs takes the one lamb and slaughters it to feed his guest and David says, the man shall die. And Nathan said, it's you, David. 
you. Can you imagine how crushed? When's the last time you felt the crushing hand of God? May I propose something to you tonight? If it's been months, don't you wonder why? Have we become so comfortable with our sin? Have we become so easy with our sin that we didn't recognize the conviction of God and our own need for forgiveness? You have broken, the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. I was sitting there this afternoon studying. And I instantly thought where it said blot out all my iniquities. I thought of Colossians 2.14. Let me read that to you. Colossians 2.14 says, let me pick up verse number 13. And you... Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. Having wiped out, and again, old King James, this is New King James, blotted out. Having blotted out, blotted out the handwriting of requirements that was against you, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That's what God has done for our sins. He has blotted them out in the blood of Jesus Christ. He has taken them and nailed them to the cross. But then I thought, hide your face from my sin. And I realized that's what the Father did. When Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in Christ. On the cross, Jesus cries out to the Father and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as his son became sin, God turned his face from our sin. And David is pleading for the cross experience, for the Calvary experience, looking forward a couple thousand years. Looking for and say, in the same way that you have turned your back on your son and our sin, turn your back on my sin. He understood the concept of blood. Blot out, just like Colossians 2.14 says. Blot out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us with the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And you know, if all this is true and all this is happening, does it show you the gravity of sin? Does it show you how we ought to keep you know, our lives, our heart, our new heart clean? Not because God said so, because again, we show our love for Him. Our intense love. You know, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul, oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? He loved us so incredibly. He calls us to keep our hearts clean. And life is just better. I was just listening. I, told, I called Bonnie Barton. And, and checked on Tom. And she said to me tonight, she said, Tom, they're pretty sure he's got something going on cardiac-wise. Tom, be sure and tell them you're tired all the time. Be sure and tell them you're tired all the time. And those of you who had heart trouble, you know that a, a loss of energy, um, a shortness of breath is one of the signs of heart disease. Dare I say, could I propose to you that just perhaps that we, when we see symptoms like that, 
that there's no joy, there's no wonder, there's a tiredness spiritually in our lives, that we should pause and say, God, what's going on in my heart? And maybe, just maybe, ask him to do a heart exam. Search me, oh God. Know my heart today. See if there be any wicked way in me. Don't listen to your heart. What did we learn this morning from Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Your heart will lie to you. Your heart will tell you everything's okay. You're better than so-and-so. You're better than this person. Your heart will lie to you. Should we not go to the cardiac doctor and ask him to search our hearts? Find out why we seem to be... If this, if this is normal... Find out why we're not normal. If this is normal, find out why we're not. If, if John 10.10 10 truly talks about the abundant life, and we don't feel very abundant ever, should we ask why? Yeah. Amen? I mean, this is logical, if nothing else. Spiritually logical. He says... Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Create in me a restored heart. In other words, again, David has followed the prescription. What the Bible said to do to restore that fellowship, he has done. He's acknowledged his sin. He's turned from his sin. Again, as far as we know, there was one Bathsheba. It wasn't Bathsheba number two and Bathsheba the series. Um, Bathsheba, the sequel, there was one. He seemed to have learned from this. Okay? So now he pleads to God, God, restore my heart. Create in me a clean heart, a restored heart. Now, I really want to give you three things. Before you claim a restored heart, make sure you got honest with God and you got honest with you and if it involves someone else, it has to be brought into it. You know, if I just looked at George and said, that's the ugliest shirt in my world, you know, in my, I've ever seen in this world, you know, I, and I didn't voice that, then I probably don't need to go to George and say, George, I just need to tell you, I thought that was the ugliest shirt in the world. Okay? But if I publicly offended George, then George needs to be addressed. So three things. Before this restored heart, address it with God authentically. Address it with yourself. You've got to come honest with God about your sin, about, about the situation, whatever it is that you're dealing with. And then there's others, deal with others. You need to be sure, after you repent of the sin, to accept God's forgiveness. To forgive yourself and receive the forgiveness of others. The idea, the concept of I offend Judy, and then I can just go to God and say, oops, sorry again, God. What if I had every time, what if every time since I'm a public figure, what if every time I offended Judy, I'd stand before you and say, y'all need to know I offended my wife on Tuesday. Do you think that would be a little bit of a deterrent? What if I would report to the deacons every time I offended her? Another deacon's meeting this week, whoops. There's power in that. There's power in that. When we acknowledge and own our sin and then receive, you know, ask for forgiveness, be sure to forgive ourselves 
and forgiving those that we've offended. Hmm. He goes on and said this. Verse 11. Or, or it, what, I'm sorry, back up 10. And renew a steadfast spirit. And the, the word steadfast is willing. A willing spirit. My will is, my, my conscious desire is, is to move forward. The past is past. Would you say it with me, please? The past is past. Now listen. Once you follow the prescription, once you look at Psalm 51, it's a great example. Once you follow 51 dealing with your sin, don't you let Satan beat you up. Come on now. In fact, don't you let others beat you up. You know, there are two great boxing champions in the world, Muhammad Ali and Baptist. Like, beat people up. Yeah, I remember 38 years ago, you did this. Put the past in the past. Deal with it. Then put the past in the past. I'm telling you, if you get a cut and you leave the Germans there, Germans in there, and the Germans, <laughs> if you leave that German there, what's going to happen? Infection. You put all the band-aid you want on it, but the infection's going to grow. Deal with it and then put it in the past. Restore. Do not, I'm sorry, boy, I keep getting ahead of myself. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Again, that is not a statement about David losing his relationship with God. It is about divine authority. David was the king of Israel by divine authority. He had seen Saul lose that divine authority. God, don't let me lose my divine authority. And that should be a prayer too. God, keep me pure. Keep me clean. Keep me honest. So your power and your authority can flow through me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with your generous spirit. The commentary said this. It's the one I want to be sure to give credit to. Sin and joy cannot exist in the same heart. Sin and joy. Sin and happiness maybe. But sin and joy cannot exist in the same heart. So once David dealt with the sin scripturally, then he can say, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with your generous spirit. Give me that willing, passionate spirit to obey. In verse 13, I always, I love this because it's hard for me. And it's, well, I don't know, I always confess all my sins to you guys. Or at least 90% of them it seems like. But this is so important. Look what he says. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. In other words, after I've dealt with this sin, after I've approached you, I've acknowledged it, I confessed it, I turned from it, after I'm forgiven, after I'm restored, after I'm healed, I will go and teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. David said, as a grace experiencer, I will share the grace of God. I will tell my story. And again, I know sometimes this is like incredibly hard. But the most powerful sermons that are preached are not from the pulpit. They are from the pews. And I promise you, again, like the dude I talked about Wednesday night who picked up his mat and carried it. Hey, Joe, one, you're walking. That's incredible what happened. I met Jesus. Well, Joe, why are you carrying the mat? Because the mat represents grace. It's rolled up. It's no longer my master. 
And when we can go in our lives and we've dealt with our sin, you're going to run across someone out there in your world. It may be 500 feet underground. It may be at school. It may be the office, wherever. And that person is going to need an encouraging word about grace. And if you have courage, you can say, I've been where you've been. I walked where you walked. And I want to tell you how God dealt with me in grace. And it may be a lost man who comes to salvation. It may be a a Christian who gets restored. And that is so powerful. And what's really great about this, and again, we're not going to touch it tonight, but Psalm 32, write that down. Psalm 32 is the fulfillment of this. When David said, then, after all of this, then, after I'm restored, then, after I'm healed, then, after I've turned and I've experienced your grace, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted. And David kept his word. And Psalm 32, go home and read it. Psalm 32 is him doing exactly that. And it's powerful. It's strong. I try to be careful what I say and what I preach, especially if it's hard for me or I'm not living it. Because I know this difficulty. I live in a, I live in a very glass house. Very glass house. A fishbowl, one person called. I live there. David, you live there. Your family lives there. But I'm telling you, there is power when we can share God's grace. Why we think we have to wear a mask, I don't know. And I don't know if it'll ever happen this side of heaven or not. But wouldn't it be incredible if God's house could be a place where people could be transparent and real without fear of retribution or judgment? Wouldn't that be incredible? When a person could stand up and say, I sinned and I do it and this is what involved, and not worry about a rock hitting them inside the head. And I'm telling you what, you want Bible? You want depth? You want deepness? Get that kind of teaching in your life. Amen? Amen? Amen. That should be a, and we do halfway decent. We probably get a C plus. Most churches don't even pass. But when we can reach that point, when we truly accept people, when we see people as God sees people, and see circumstances as God sees circumstances, when we get to the point where people can be real, we can't build a building that will hold it. Because people don't need our judgment, but they sure need our Savior. And they need grace. Let's, Let's pray. Father, I am overwhelmed tonight and I'm so grateful. Maybe because I know my own frailty. I am so grateful, Father, that in your words you include scriptures like this. It would have been so easy for the, for the uh, Jewish historians to eliminate Bathsheba, to eliminate Uriah because it involved their favorite king. But you made sure it was in the word for us to love and to save her tonight. Thank you for that. God, bother us about our sin. Bother us about our sin. Father, bring us to a point in our lives when we are ready and willing again in this century, not reading about great revivals, great fallings of the Holy Spirit a hundred years ago, but Father, in this century and this time, bring us, God, to a point where we will be haunted by our sin, acknowledging our sin, turning from our sin for your honor 
and for your glory. Father, that kind of action will be like a magnet as you draw people to yourself. Father, help our church to be a church where we can be real and authentic without fear of judgment. And God, again, thank you. Thank you for the new birth. Thank you for the heart transplant. And thank you for dealing with us and teaching us about how to take care of our new heart. And Jesus, we pray this in your name.